Is it working? Gorgeous. Is it working? It's absolutely gorgeous when it works like that, isn't it? Oh, it's gorgeous, love. <laughs> My name's Yersha Ronan and you're watching Brooklyn. Disney Channel. <laughs> and you're watching Little Women. Mistakes. She apparently like auditioned for because you know she was a child yeah. actress. She auditioned for Disney. I don't know about Disney specifically, but like children's movies and shows, oh, she wow. auditioned for, and so, she never. And, she always got really adult stuff. Yeah, good you know? for her. That that happened. I know it, it is, were, but you know her first role, Atonement. Oh God, one of the best. Yes, I saw him. I think I saw him. You think you saw him, <laughs> or you know you saw him. I saw him. I saw, I saw him with my eyes. own eyes. Um, Kira Knightley's green dress in that is Which everything. is actually... That's a drum roll. Nika is not a musician. It's a skirt and a shirt. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, wait, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. If you think about it from the back, it does look like a skirt and a shirt. Yeah, they did it. They had to... They like did it for a specific reason. I read about this recently because it was... Really, really hot when they were filming. And I she guess. wanted to just take her top off whenever <laughs> the cameras weren't rolling. I get and it. And they Kara. wanted her to have like something that was supposed to supposed to like symbolize like her sexuality and like also her status with like the emerald green mm. and that I don't know. There's like a whole bit about it. But yeah, it is a skirt and a dress. When she gets out of that fountain. Uh, with her bush, with her with her full bush showing, so and her hot. oh god, and James McAvoy just being like, what? You know, he makes that exact Such noise in this very serious drama. No one ever remembers that one of the trailers for that movie had One Republic apologize what? in the trailer. Yes, that is. It was like it was like not the, okay. It was like the soundtrack. I remember it's like the soundtrack, and it's like Robbie like doing the voiceover where he's like writing her the letter while he's away at war. And then it immediately cuts to older uh, Saoirse Ronan's character being like, I'm very, very sorry. sorry and then the apologize. Caused. <laughs> and then apologize starts playing. <laughs> Too late to apologize. Okay, bleep, bleep. Um, <laughs> we don't want to get claimed. Yeah, we do. Um, cause we want all 10 cents <laughs> that we're going to make off of this episode. Okay. Um, one last atonement fact that is truly one of my favorite movies Same. of all time. And it was at the time that it came out. I remember Saoirse Ronan. I like was like, Oh, I am obsessed with her. She's going to be mm-hmm. the most famous actress in the world. And I remember, you know, she wasn't that she didn't work a ton for a few years after that in as high profile yeah. of things. So I just remember like my friends being like, Kay, but me still being like, Oh, just watch her. Just watch this girl. And then the lovely bones happened, yes. And then Hannah uh. happened. And I just, uh, I love her. But anyway, my name is Susie Salmon. <laughs> oh my God. I was murdered when I was 12 years old. I recently, for whatever reason, watched a YouTube video just about the lovely bones. Have you read the book? Yeah. I've wa- oh, I've read it. I've the watched it. they butchered. But I just remember being like, this is a really fucked up book that I read in like eighth grade. Wait, you know who was supposed to play the dad in The Lovely Bones? Who? But when he showed up to the first day of cast, the first day of filming, they were like, get out, you're fired. 
Um, I'm Jake Gyllenhaal. Wait, why? So because <laughs> let me let me get out your fire. Yeah, let me. Well, let me double check that that was the correct actor. But I'm pretty sure it was. Um, hold on, Jake Gyllenhaal. And what happened was that he sh- he basically gained a fuck ton of weight. Because he was like, well, I feel like this dad, like this character is like this depressed dad who's like middle aged. His daughter is dead. He's probably going to be like heavy and look like shit. And they were like, oh, no, wait, I we actually like, heard about this, but I didn't know which actor. It they was. were like, we cast you because you're, you're hot. hot. Um, and they were like, yeah, you're done. And so they fired him and they got Mark Wahlberg instead yeah, it was Jake Gyllenhaal. That's so funny. Funny actors who went how, way too far for a nothing. Role. How much weight did he gain? I'll, I'm pulling up the article right now. Let's see. That's such a bummer. Like preparing, like he deliberately prepared for a role and like just did it wrong and then lost the job and was still like fat afterwards. You I know, know. <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> Wait, let's see where. <laughs> but it's it's Jake Gyllenhaal, so I'm I sure know. he snapped right back into his. I mean, listen, I've heard he's a real fuck. Fucking weirdo. Yeah, I mean, really, um, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> we know someone. Who well, we, you and I family. both know two different people that know the Hall family. Who do you know? We've already talked about this, but I can't talk about it on the pod now. Okay. Well, I don't remember. I worked for someone who's very close friends with the Hall family. I love how you only remembered the Hall story you told me, but you're not going to remember that. I, I didn't also... tell you. We were in the car together when it was told to us. Okay. It was told to us in Vermont when we were coming back from the hike. Okay, you're right. <laughs> it's not my fault you were on acid and don't remember. <laughs> I remember the story. I just forgot I remember everything about celebrities. He told us directly. I thought maybe you relayed the story to me and no. I wasn't present for it. But you're right. I remember now. Anyway, I also know someone who knows the Dylan Halls and whatever. I, I don't have any tea. It's not like I'm going to cancel Jake Dylan Hall. He's just apparently kind of a weirdo. I love that. Love him even more. Yeah. Okay, so it says he was fired from Lovely Bones after gaining a ton of weight by drinking melted Haagen-Dazs ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Why, Jake? Why did you do that? And the director was so, because it literally was the first day to film. And the director was like, what the... We never discussed. <laughs> well, that's like Dem- so. Demi Moore pulled the same shit for a ghost. She like they cast her when they saw her in about last night. Her hair was like down to her tits and they cast her for a ghost. And then she cut off all of her hair into the iconic like page mm-hmm. boy haircut and shut up to the first day of filming. And the director was like, you're fired. And everyone else was like, no, she's not. And she ended up. They unionized. <laughs> yeah, she ended up. <laughs> no, you're right. They, they unionized. She ended up. Um. obviously playing the role in Ghost of Molly or yeah of Molly and then creating like an iconic haircut for that uh, era yeah I love when actors do shit like that and get away with it yeah and also it's not like I mean Jake Gyllenhaal it's not like he like oh I really needed that paycheck you know he's fine I'm sure there was a role that he had like I had to go to someone like Mark Wahlberg he doesn't have any talent he deserves a bone here and there you know literally he deserves a lovely bone here a lovely bone (laughs) let's throw Mark Wahlberg a lovely bone he doesn't though right isn't he like racist and a bad person yeah he's like he literally (laughs) allegedly he turned down Dick Gyllenhaal's role in um Brokeback Mountain because he was these two are always trading roles because he was uncomfortable with like everything about it being gay and he was like I'm not doing that (laughs) (laughs) well that's when he turned it down yeah 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 he read the script and like the quote is like something like I'm sorry but like I'm not into that gay stuff like it's a really like but but hasn't hasn't he also committed 
literal hate crimes. Yeah, allegedly. when he was like eighteen or nineteen in Boston, cool, which cool, people cool. love to be like, he was eighteen. It was a different time. <laughs> like it was like nineteen eighty seven. I think it was like later than that, right? I don't know. He's like in his late forties. Have you ever seen his crazy workout? Uh, routine that he has it's no. like from 5 a.m to like 10 o'clock at night and he has like he allots like two hours a day to spend with his family and then everything else is like work out work work out work work out work it's insane huh that's how he keeps his ripped that's bod. that's like me but just with twitter i'm like <laughs> i have a very strict twitter schedule where it's Twitter, work, Twitter, work, and um, I never see my family. I have no schedule, and I just um, read that that – I just did my Myers-Briggs in my room, and I read that that is a um, big part of my personality type, which is e- an ENFPT. Wait. What's the T? I don't know, but I read about it. Wait, ENFP-T. Oh, oh, wait. So it's um, – what are what do those stand for again, the, the letters? I know it's uh, extrovert, introvert, intuitive – Logical sensing. sensing, okay, whatever. I'm feeling, ki- receiving, thinking. Oh, sorry, thinking, feeling, judging, perceiving. What's the T? Yeah, so I don't know. Because you, that's one extra letter. I've never heard it, somebody have another like letter. T dominant, like you're, you're thinking. Dom- I have no fucking idea. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but it does mention that. It like talks about how people um, with that personality type are like heinously bad at having schedules and like any kind of like root or not schedules routines where we're like we don't fuck with routines huh at all well i'm also an enfp so i might also just slap that t on there because i'm pretty similar do it i think yeah anyway um Mark Wahlberg, bad. Atonement, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal, sometimes fat. Lovely Bones, okay. Lovely Bones, fine. It beautiful, beautiful. Like yeah. it was filmed it's just, very they well. Took such a chunk. They really out. like yeah. the whole affair with the mom. Yeah, no, the movie is nothing. It's, it's honestly, it's not even. It's like it's roughly based on yeah. the book. But it's we got not Susan Sarandon, thing. which was Susan sick. Sarandon. It's just like a, it's an amazing cast, <laughs> other than um, Wahlberg. Yeah. But anyway, oh, atonement. Uh, the one thing I was going to say is that there is an incredible Dolly shot in that movie during D Day. Wow, film expert. Elisa's being a chatty Kathy today, which we love, but now she's starting to hurt my feelings. Genuinely <laughs> yeah, impressed. Dolly shot, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't even know. Well, I'll, uh, yeah, so during the during the D-Day, well, because I've worked on film sets, you guys, so <laughs> tucks hair behind yeah. ear for the Gen Z. For, for any Gen Z listening and you don't know uh, what someone means unless they're tucking their hair behind their ear or not, or if they're shading their eyes, um, just so you know, I did tuck my hair. Yeah, <laughs> and then touch my index fingers to each other. Um, but there's a really amazing, like, historical dolly shot that, like, atonement film buffs, like, hold atonement in high regard for this you'll notice it's all in one take the the scene. I'll show it to you. I know what scene you mean. The scene during D-Day where they're walking through the beach Mm -hmm. 
It's all one shot. Whoa. They don't cut at all. I love that. And the, the the amount of coordination with like the extras and stuff in the background, like everyone had to be acting 100% of the time for that full like eight minute scene because they didn't know mm. when they were going to be in the background or not. You know, like it wasn't like, OK, yeah. cut. Now we're doing this angle. It's very I'm like obsessed with watching that scene and that. wondering um, how hard it was to film. So anyway, that's how I, I feel that way about the, uh, is the, amazing. the blitz scene, how hard that must have been to film when, scene? when Karen Ellie dies at the end. Okay, spoiler. Oh, it came out in 2007. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, based on a book that came out like, like you know, whenever. Know. Was it like Speaking of that movie, I'm looking very uh, for our listeners. I'm looking very much like Vanessa Redgrave at the end of that movie this week with my new haircut. You are. <laughs> it's true. Because you see Robbie died of septicemia. <laughs> Celia died in the pits. Celia. I've by writing this book, I have given them their atonement. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Yeah, it's an incredible film. And also... I remember I saw that movie in theaters with my stepsister, who was like 23 at the time, and I was like, I don't know, 12. And I remember when we met up with her dad and my mom at dinner after, I was like... (laughs) I was like, yeah, so, like, did you get, like, what the movie was about, Justine? Like, you, like, understood it, though, right? And my mom was like, you're being a con. But I just had to make sure. It was a very deep film. So what were you making sure she picked up on? Just, like, the plot. Okay. (laughs) Just, like, the deeper meaning of, like, regret. Honestly, that movie is about a mistake. Yeah, it is. Oh, my God. You're right. Uh, it's about it's about atonement for a mistake. So in a way, this podcast is like the comedy version of atonement. We should rename the podcast Atonement. I'm, atonement cast. I'm the Brenda Blethyn of uh, this of this podcast. Mentally, this week I'm feeling like Brenda Blethyn when she is smashing the policeman's car with an umbrella oh. and they arrest Robbie. Mentally this week, I'm... <laughs> Mentally this week, I am Saoirse Ronan, like, looking out the window, watching somebody get arrested because of something I said <laughs> and doing nothing. <laughs> That's where I am. I'm like, wow, things seem bad right now and there's kind of nothing that I'm feeling called to do about it. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of just bear witness, I think, I to that. the chaos. Um, <laughs> anyway, what's what's your your new your you know what's mistakes, keepsakes and hot takes. Um, what's my keepsake? What's my keepsake? Oh, well, actually, my keepsake is that I got a um, postcard in the Aww. mail. From, a literal keepsake. A literal keepsake from my uh, friend Beardonce, um, who I haven't seen since November of last year when we were in Tennessee together. And they sent me a very lovely postcard with a nice little note on it. Um, Is that their um, Christian name? I don't... I, oh, no, I do know their Christian name. No, but they go by Beardonce or Showtime. They are a... Ama- follow them on the gram. They're an amazing... Um, drag artist in Toronto. Love. They're I'm not this bored. And it was beard, but I guess they changed it to bored because they're bored. Mm. Change it back to beard. Anyway. <laughs> um, so I got that. That was cute. That lifted my spirits. My mistake of the week. I guess my mistake of the week is just that I have been, or fuck up of the week is that I've been completely uh, checked out from everything and everyone. Um, How has that been a mistake? 
because uh, I've just like not been present or like doing like you know not like cooking you know meals for myself mm-hmm. or like you're not showing up for yourself yeah right not now. like I didn't you know I finally showered today like <laughs> I was just going out a lot by out a lot I mean to my friend's apartment anyone listening but um <laughs> going out just lots of like late nights um like one after another mm-hmm. which always makes me um a little spiral a little bit mm-hmm. um and then my hot take. Um, my hot take is that me and Anya are uh, comedians and not investigative journalists. So <laughs> for anyone who gets offended by the pod. Um, so for anyone who has been offended or might get offended, just like keep that in mind. If you want like investigative journalism Go watch My Favorite Murder or listen to My Favorite I'm Murder. Not My Favorite Murder. They also make jokes. Yeah, but they're like more, I don't know. They're, I think they're more, uh, no. They go no. more in depth than Anything we do. That, no, they really don't. They use the same disclaimer every live show. Okay, well, I do listen to My Favorite Murder, guys. So yeah, so do we. My... I'm just saying, I'm saying like they very often get the same criticism that we got for the Amanda Knox episode, which by the way, the majority of the feedback for the Amanda Knox episode was positive. I just want yeah, I mean, to lay Knox that out. Our tweets, Amanda, so. uh, yeah. Even from Amanda Knox herself for literal friend of the pod, um, which um, was going to be my keepsake, but spoiler alert, Amanda Knox <laughs> DM'd me and is a friend of the pod now, um, which I still cannot believe. I can't either, but I, we did, we made a blanket statement at the very beginning episode one, that this is a comedy podcast and we're yeah. going to talk about serious things. I guess sometimes. we just need to roll it out again. You know, well, I was actually thinking that we might just want to record a little thing to just plop at the beginning of each episode. Yeah. That is basically what My Favorite Murder has said at the beginning of most of their episodes. Um, Suicide Buddies podcast used to have a little thing at the beginning of each episode, which is this is a comedy podcast. Everything that we say is with the most um, sincerest of intentions to not hurt anybody, but how we personally cope with discomfort is jokes. So when we talk about hard subjects, if you want someone who's going to be super sensitive when dealing with those subjects, listen to NPR, (laughs) but maybe not to comedians. But I don't know. I also don't think we have anything to apologize for. I don't either. But that, that's exactly my hot take is that one, we have nothing to apologize for. And yeah. two, we're fucking comedians. We're and comedians. Sucks, so. And um, I also just want to say that uh, I did not go into the Amanda Knox episode to prove her innocence. That has already been done in the court of law. Yeah. So I did not feel compelled to include every single detail of her case. There's like some people who are like, why didn't you talk about this thing? It's like, well, because that's you can go read the six books that have been written about this and And what I was talking about was about the mistakes that were made which were I talked about the mistakes in the investigation and the prosecution and the mistakes of the media I did not talk about the entire case as a whole because this isn't serial serial. it wouldn't have it wouldn't have fit into one episode to completely talk in in full about every detail of the Amanda Knox case but I do think that if you're someone who believes that Amanda Knox is not innocent that is the only way that I could see being offended by what we said because um, if you think she murdered someone which to be clear she has been fully exonerated and 
has not murdered the anybody. Highest court yeah. in my mother country. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you were to think that she was a murderer and then you and I are saying she's a girl boss and we love her, that's like kind of the only way I could see um, why our episode might have been offensive to you. But also maybe kind of catch up on the fact that she didn't murder anybody. <laughs> yeah, maybe get medicated yeah. <laughs> okay i am not speaking to anybody i know that you two are speaking to someone in particular um but i am speaking generally my mom loved the episode well she's not mentally ill Stop. <laughs> my mom is mentally ill <laughs> we're a mentally ill um family uh fam of the pod <laughs> anyway I'm sorry that you were you received um, harsh feedback for oh. the Amanda Knox episode. No, it's not. I I had already been thinking about this like before that episode anyway. That like at some point, and I think we both had these like we both had this discussion before we even started it. That like yeah. there were there's eventually the the bigger this podcast gets, the more we're gonna get people who hate it, and you know yeah when totally you get people who love it. You get people who hate it. Yeah, as they said on Real Housewives last night, you can't <laughs> you know you can't love when people love you and then hate when people hate you. Yeah, you gotta you gotta you be, gotta take you it. either you gotta, gotta be neutral on all of it or um you gotta just be okay with the fact that it, it's uh the hate is also coming. Yeah, and you know what? I do think that in the long run, more people are gonna have a bigger issue with um like our opinions than the, like, I think you and I are a little bit more inflammatory because we like, you know, we just say what it is we're thinking. Yeah. Um, and that is probably something that we're going to get in more trouble for than how we tell certain stories. I actually had a dream about the pod last night. All I'm saying is there's, I, I would like to issue an official blanket statement, which we already did in the first episode that we're comedians point blank. Anytime we talk like this is an ep- this is a podcast about mistakes and sometimes mistakes are fatal or involve dead people. And that does not mean we think that people it's funny when people die, although yeah. honestly, cosmically, it is kind of funny. And when on people that note, die. the pod's done. We're, we're, <laughs> on that note, it's over. <laughs> it's over. I don't um, want to do this anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know. I'm sure that there is more criticism coming as it should. Yeah, because totally. whatever we're putting media out. I got there. criticized in my dream last night about the podcast. Wait, really? Yeah, I you had, had a, dream. a dream about getting critical. I had a criticized. dream. I had a dream that you told me that somebody DM'd you about like DM'd the pod Instagram and said that they loved it except for the fact that I constantly attack your views. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's like some passive aggressive, like, hey, Nika, other people are saying, <laughs> just to be clear, not me, not me, other people, and I have the DMs to prove it, but I won't show them to you. Other people are saying that you're being a huge fucking bitch to me. <laughs> and I woke up and was like, wait, was that a dream or did that, did Anya tell me that at her apartment? Like, because we were drunk together yeah, last night, exactly. so that would have been really funny. Um, no, I have not received any DMs. Also, I don't do that, being... so it's like, that's funny yeah, that's no. what my dream was we're pretty um chill here on the pod with uh whether we agree with each other or not we're pretty tame i think Uh, yeah i would i would also i hope everyone can hear my invisalign is in i'm part of um (laughs) i'm part of i actually i'm not gonna shout them out because they're not they're not sponsoring the pod but I'm part of a certain club, if you will. Well, maybe they should sponsor the pod. Invisalign. Yeah. Come well, on. let's see. Let's see um, 
how my teeth turn out. Yeah. <laughs> you, you reach out to them to sponsor. I'll reach out to the person we talked about last night to be on the pod. Yeah. Oh guys, we got some guests coming on. We, we have some great guests coming on. Yeah. I'm really excited to have, we have we released a guest episode? Not yet. Now? We're we have been recording with guests, and those will come out slowly but surely. But we're also booking some like incredible guests. I'm very incredible. excited. Um, okay, so my mistake this week. Yes. Um, I let's see. I like very much let myself kind of dig myself into a um, TV induced coma this week. I just mm-hmm. kind of. I watched all of Search Party, which was amazing. Yeah, so I don't regret it. I had a great time. But I really did just consume like 25 hours of television in a span of two days. Mm -hmm. And um, that really, you know, took me out of any of the good habits that I was in before that. (laughs) And I wasn't really eating as well as I could have been, wasn't sleeping as well as I could have been. Why are you not eating? I was eating. I was just eating like cocoa puffs. <laughs> um, I am cuckoo, if you will, for cocoa puffs. Wow, that was. But uh, I'm. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't even trying to make a joke. It was more of a reference to our childhoods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would never try to make a joke. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm naturally very funny. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I was slapping my hairy leg. <laughs> Um, and my keepsake. 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 Oh my God. I had one before we started recording and then I, it's, it's, it's gone now. It's gone. I don't have it anymore and it's gone. I guess that wasn't a great keepsake then. I know. Seriously. (laughs) The whole point is that I'm supposed to carry it with me. Um, you know what, uh, keepsake that I have is basically that it's okay to not be okay. Um, as the, you know, the more um, cliche way of putting it. But I feel like right now is an exceptionally hard time to like keep on keeping on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, we're still in the midst of this horrific pandemic. It's actually getting worse, which is chill, um, <laughs> which we love. Um, it's so dark out and so fucking cold, cold uh. and it's snowing all across the country right now. And I just feel, listen, get out there, take a walk, get some like vitamin D, get some fresh air. But also if you are incapable of doing that and you just want to like lay face down in bed for four days, I kind of feel like do that, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think we need to, we need to like snap out of our like obsession with being like with feeling better. Mm. I feel like this, this, we're not going to feel better. Like the, the circumstances, are shitty and it's okay to feel like shit right now. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, you should, you should pursue, you should feel like shit. <laughs> you should pursue, you should pursue like calm. Like you, uh, if you're in a place, if you're in such a shitty mental place that you're like a danger to yourself or others, like, please seek help, obviously. But I just mean the general malaise. I think it's a fruitless endeavor to try to be fighting that right now. Yeah, I agree. I definitely, and it makes uh, me feel worse, at least, when I have that mindset of I need to feel better. Yeah. I'm like, it's okay that this is a very heavy and hard time. And um, we're you. going on a year almost. Uh-huh. And I just feel uh-huh. like 
uh, do little things that make you feel better and take care of yourself, but don't like get upset at yourself. If like you, you're just feeling like shit, yes. that's my keepsake. That is my keepsake. Thank you, Nika. And I, that's kind no, of you, something Anya. that I needed to say to myself this week. And I actually do feel so much better since just telling myself, like, listen, sleep all day. Yeah, that did <laughs> do make it. Me feel it's fine to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, don't um, don't give up on like, you know, little things that make you feel better. You know, like if, if whether it's watching search party or if it's going for a run, if you're one of those people, <laughs> um, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> but like do the little things that like for me, I love like making my tea in the morning. That's my yeah. little like oh, my day has started because I'm drinking my fucking tea that I love sometimes coffee. And like there's just little moments, little rituals that make us feel human yeah but um i just don't think like the snapping out of it you know we're all in this i think we're all in this mental fog and snapping out of it isn't really an option right now yeah i think no it, i mean i um that's kind of a hot take too but that's you. probably not my absolute my my hot take this week is um <laughs> well i had a hot take on twitter that people hated that, that was this week. Can you believe? Can you believe? <laughs> Can you believe that that is still within the last seven days? I tweeted something about how sex is not inherently intimate because I believe that it is not inherently intimate. Yes. I think that people... Um, can make it intimate or experience it intimately together if that's how they like to have sex. I'm a pretty vanilla person in bed. I love intimate sex. I'm not saying that I think that intimate sex is wrong. I just said I made a tweet essentially saying that it's a choice for it to be. Intimate. Well, there was also context behind your tweet. Yes. The context was about that person's initial tweet, which was talking about only fans and like the commodification of sex being depressing through the lens of capitalism. Right. And it's like everything is depressing exactly. through the lens of capitalism. So, so maybe like stop putting sex workers in the hot seat when it's capitalism, that's the problem. Yeah. And then, yeah, their thing was like, well, sex is an intimate act. And so like it, it's this person's like in their, t- can you, I was so depressing that they're like in their twenties and like, this is how they view. Th- I'm like, what are you? That I'm talking to my dad. I know it's, it's depressing. Well, so basically my tweet was that like, when you make, <laughs> when, when you see sex through solely an intimate lens, it actually ultimately like hurts women and queer people and is weaponized against us because of like slut shaming and homophobia or, and like often, you know, homophobia through the lens of like, you know, gay men are like these, like they're, they, cause gay men famously are the, the group of people that have been able to separate intimacy from sex yeah. the most effectively, I think in their practices. Um, and, uh, you know, people will make that out to be part of the reason that they're such a like sinful group of people. Yeah. And it's just like, no, you're just pushing your own, like your own perspective of sex, which is that it's intimate, which like I said, is fine. It should be. If that's how you feel about it, then great. Live that life for yourself. But when you make it out to be that it is inherently intimate, you're um ultimately like casting judgment on people who don't like engage in sex in that way. And then yeah. therefore perpetuating the bullshit narratives around those people like gay people or like slutty women or like sex workers. Yeah. etc. And also the, you know, and ugh. then there's like the idea too, that like, uh, 
women, women who are hypersexual and like just have sex for fun are like faking it. And like, they're like tools of the patriarchy and they're, they don't yes. really want to do that, which I've experienced because oh obviously God. I'm a transsexual woman <laughs> of faggot experience. So I come from that background of being like, sex is hot and fun and like not intimate. And like, it literally is like eating a fucking ice cream cone yeah. a lot of the time for me. But then when I transitioned, I was immediately put into a place where like, and I still deal with this, where like, if I'm fucking a straight guy, they're like weirded out by like how sexual I am. Right. Because there's this, you know, a fucking straight man want to like coerce you into being fucked. Right. And it's like, no girl. And that has nothing to do with my like, what, you know, possible socialization as like a gay, you know, man. It's just that I'm a sexual Sexual person. person. Yeah. And I like, yeah, sometimes sex is intimate, but the majority of the time I just want to like, Sit down, fuck, get up and go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like the majority of people who were like, like, one person told me that I need to delete my tweet because it was irresponsible to put it out there for possibly a teenage girl to find that tweet. Oh my God. Well, maybe teenagers shouldn't be on Twitter. (laughs) I mean, I don't necessarily feel that way, but I will say if I were a teenager and I came across, because I was a very sexual teenager and I felt a lot of shame about that. I felt a lot of internalized slut shaming about how many people I had had sex with by a certain age. And I just feel like it would have been really like, we all have heard the perspective that sex is an intimate and sacred and special act. Like, it's not like that's like a perspective that teenagers haven't heard yet. Yeah. So I actually personally would have benefited, I think from seeing adults speak candidly about how sex can also just be a fun thing. Yeah. Because I I felt very much like I was a slutty piece of shit when I was like 15. And um, I don't know. I feel like every time adults try to like shield teenagers from like liberated sexual perspectives, they're infantilizing them in this way. That's like, well, teenagers and like five-year-olds are, we're dealing, they're both minors, but we're dealing with very different types of people. Yeah. And a lot of these teenagers are already having sex. So why are we excluding them from the discussions about sexuality and sex? Yeah. It's, I um, think. No, I agree with you. And obviously I don't think that teenagers shouldn't be on Twitter. No, I know. Um, I know you I don't just, actually um, feel that way. I just like hate that shit. Like I'm, I, I don't give, I, it's not my responsibility to like tweet things responsibly I know I also say 18 plus in my bio yeah I don't but I'm like fuck off I'm like no you know unless I'm like being paid to mentor you and like an after-school program it's like (laughs) truly not not my responsibility like I'm off the clock (laughs) Um, yeah I agree with that I think it's um a little bit I mean it's it's like when people are like what about the children with like Cardi B's music and it's like well maybe like don't let your kids listen to Cardi B. <laughs> maybe leave that to the adults responsible for the children yeah. it's not it's not every single adults in adult in the world's responsibility to raise every single child. Yeah, I'm in the so world. tired of this. I've been feeling this way a lot <laughs> lately how much we live in a culture that is like obsessed with the family unit and protecting children even in public spaces. Yeah. And I'm like I don't have a kid, so I don't give a fuck about <laughs> your kid. Yeah, it's not um, my problem. You, like, li- you chose to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and when I choose to have kids one day and be an Upper West Side uh, of New York mom and or Sutton Place, um, then I'll deal with that then. But until yeah. then, I'm a childless deviant whore, and I don't really care about your kids. <laughs> I also think that... Fuck um, kids. 
our children should be exposed to childless deviant whores. <laughs> I agree with you. I think. I that's, think a huge... that's what Winnie Houston said in the song, uh, the ch- uh, something about the children. The, the saying, children are our future. Yeah, the children are our future. She says. Expose them to deviant and childless whores. whores. Yeah, yeah, that's what she says. It's word literally for what word. she sings. Yeah. <laughs> and, if you th- and if you think that we're lying, then. Like the, edi- the radio edited it out. It's a deep state. <laughs> it's kind conspiracy. of like, let's get it started by the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> They just, it's a different edit that you heard. Um, No, I mean, like, you know, a lot of us childless deviant whores are aunts or. Yeah, I'm an aunt, you know. And I just, I feel like, um, (laughs) I don't know. I feel like a huge part of us continuing to like think that women's sexuality is like grotesque is because um, as children, we are fed this narrative, you know, the Madonna and the whore thing yeah and we're not actually we don't actually meet the whores we just hear about them yeah and i'm i am just like i'm tired of this is like what's going to be my hot take but it's not so i'll like cut it down but i am like also getting increasingly more exhausted with the constant controversy surrounding people being on OnlyFans, and then like <laughs> feeling like i have to defend it because it's annoying i, I agree because it's like i don't like For me personally, I don't feel like any more empowered being on like being a sex worker than I do about any other job. Like it's a job. job. I don't really like it, but I do it to make money. (laughs) It's like it, it, you know, it it is what it is. It's hard work, and it's like I'm tired of being put in these positions where I have to like be performative because I I often feel like that's kind of where the conversation goes online. We're like to push back against being criticized for being a sex worker. A lot of sex workers will then come out and you almost want to like flip the narrative and be like, this is extremely empowering and like girl Mm -hmm. boss vibes, Mm -hmm. which if it is for you, that's fine. But I'm like, it's just like, yeah, you're right. Capitalism is depressing and jobs suck. (laughs) And like, I'm just like trying to pay my rent like that. Yeah, I think really the only like, I definitely am one of the people that I will push back in certain ways um, because of how annoying the like criticism around OnlyFans is. But it is just like at the end of the day, any means to make money sucks. Even if you're doing the thing that you've always wanted Wanted to to do, do. like it's um, soul crushing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's not soul crushing because my pussy is involved. Exactly. Thank you. I'm like, it's soul crushing (laughs) because I hate working. Yeah. Not because I'm (laughs) masturbating on camera. That's like my tweet from like two years ago is sex work is real work. And that's the only thing stopping me from doing it. (laughs) And now I am doing it. And I'm like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Also, I was doing it back then, too, but I was in the closet. Yeah. And I also wasn't doing it full time the way I am now. Um, But hey, subscribe to my OnlyFans. I'm doing a really fun. um, The entire month of February is Valentine's Day on my OnlyFans. And I got pleasers and I'm wearing them. Sick. Anyway. I love that. I also love that. Fuck up of the week. SNL. Fuck up of the week. Yeah, definitely SNL, which if you guys don't know what that is, it's Saturday Night Live. The um. <laughs> the <laughs> weekly Saturday show that happens at night and is and live, live in New York in um, <laughs> City. From uh, um, 30 Rockefeller. Place, Plaza. Plaza. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, let's really get into it, which is that Michael Che 
Um, is that how you say his last yeah. name? Yeah, okay. famously kind of like in the at least the comedy community, a An asshole. known asshole. Yeah, like literally bullied someone on Twitter like a few months ago relentlessly. He like, relentless, relentlessly bullied. Bullied is honestly harassed is a better yeah, word. I would, yeah. Um, one of my friends a few years ago too. He's insane. Anyway, <laughs> SNL loves to you know make fucking transphobic jokes michael che and colin jost who looks like a corpse that <laughs> keeps getting like fucking refilled every five years Ugh, married to scarlett johansson i hate him um, <laughs> anyway they made a they made a joke on weekend update about uh the biden administration allowing trans people to be back in the military and michael che goes on to say that the policy biden is calling the policy uh don't ask don't talk Ugh. um which is just like, I'm like, one, read the room. Like, one, obviously it's never okay for cis people to make jokes about trans people's bodies. Two, like, we just lost Sophie, who yeah. is a trans pop star, like, literally two days ago, or a day ago. On top of it being another year of insane, like, the murder rate for trans women and trans people has gone up yet again. Mm-hmm. It's like, what are we doing here? Like... But it's funny. It's so funny. Oh, my God. Uh, well, because women aren't supposed to have penuses. But here's my thing. And that's the joke. Why are people still fucking watching SNL? Why are, like, why, I don't know really that why are all the are. Why are all the comedians that I follow on Twitter watching SNL and then bitching? Uh, I've said this before. Like, just turn it off. Yeah. If everyone stopped watching it. But, like... A lot of people have stopped watching it. No, I know. I'm just sure. saying it's like a, it's like I, I stopped watching it. What? 20. Whenever they had Trump on in 2016 was the last yeah. time I watched it. Um, and even before that, I was getting pretty tired of it because they're they're just like fucking hack humor at this point. Yep. Michael Che is um, very deeply annoying to me, but he also is weirdly his existence is very reassuring to me that um, you can have a career no matter how alienating you are online. (laughs) Michael Che, come on the pod. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, don't. (laughs) But it is it's like so funny every time he gets in trouble so much online and continues to stay so booked and busy. And I'm like, I get in trouble for very different kinds of things than he does. Like I get in discourse war. He like harasses women <laughs> to very different things. But I am like, I do love that the, it's been proven that you can be like hated online yeah, and if you're still. A man. St- I know, but like, I'll break that glass ceiling. Right, transition. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm uh, choking on my own spit. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, good for him. So, yeah, this episode is about the. Triangle Factory Fire. Triangle Factory Fire. Of 1912. Yeah. Another another example of capitalism being soul crushing and literally killing us. (laughs) Killing uh, and uh, exploiting women. Yeah, specifically. Specifically women. Um, Yeah, we really got into it on this episode. Um, It's my personal favorite uh, national tragedy. (laughs) Um, See, that's what's going to get us in trouble. Picking favorite tragedies now. It's my favorite tragedy. I'm you know, it's, <laughs> what, I'm not going to lie. It's that. And then, you know, for international ones, it's the brutal murder of the Russian royal family, which I'm going to do an episode about that at some point. Can't wait. Uh, same. Um, yeah. So. Get into it. Get into it. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> 
That's our company guarantee. Our company guarantee is you will not experience. Uh, are you tired of experiencing experiencing transmisogyny at the workplace from other queers? Well, come to Best Mistakes, and we will represent you in the court of law. <laughs> it's always from other queer people. Yeah, it's so annoying. Queer law. Queer law. <laughs> I, my name is Nicola Mazzo, and I will represent you only if you have experienced trans misogyny. <laughs> have you or someone you know? You want to talk about being gaslit, baby? Have you been a victim of trans? Mis- have you or have you have you or anyone you know been a victim of trans misogyny? <laughs> Call one eight hundred. Fuck this gaslighting bullshit. Dot com. Dot, dot com and the phone number. <laughs> I don't, I was, that was the joke. I was just well, not, making a joke. Okay. Well, not all jokes land. Um, yeah, and that's just a, like that's the of story of my life, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, not all jokes land. That'll be my special name, my Netflix special. Okay. Um, do you want to read this week's listener mistake? Yeah, mine's going to be high class white trash. Um, that's going to be your your name for my Netflix special. Congrats. I have a few that are on my list. That's one of them. Okay. Listener mistakes. So this is from No Name. Twenty uh, four hour edible. Hi Nika and Anya. How are you both? I've really been enjoying your podcast thus far. I love the idea for it, and I love learning from my fuck ups. I also weirdly love talking about myself in the context of a fuck up. Is that masochism? I don't know, baby. You're asking the wrong girls. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, it's literally our brand. It's literally so. why we started this podcast. Um. Anyway, weird side note, but I'm I'm also from Rhode Island and went to the same high school as Nika. Fight maroon and white. Fight fight. Okay, a Lasallian ram in the house. Please <laughs> message me and tell me who you are. I am too a queer person to have emerged from that low-key, god-awful place. (laughs) Oh, Nika, you have been a really cool person for me to follow on social media these past few years, even if we never knew each other in high school. Seriously, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, babe. Um, The fuck-up I want to share is one that I am not proud of, but one that I felt was necessary to happen. Throughout high school, I never smoked weed. This was mostly because I knew my parents would catch me somehow. They always managed to, and because I truly had not much interest in drugs and alcohol yet. So throughout my freshman year of college, I certainly made up for that lost time and how much weed I smoked, consumed, what have you. Yet the only thing I had not conquered were edibles. It still confused me how much one should take to be to be just the right amount of high. Even after feeling like I know how many milligrams of THC I should consume, I still always feel either too high or not high enough when I eat edibles. Same. Anyway, the night before my birthday during the summer after my freshman year of college, my friend and I decided to buy edibles to celebrate. The guy we knew sold these 200 milligram edibles, yikes, that were supposedly (laughs) really strong, yeah, according to my friend. Um, She had reportedly taken a single bite of one of his edibles at work and was pretty faded for a good three to four hours afterward. That night, we bought two edibles. We cut one in half and ate that, but if that, oh no, But eventually decided later on that 100 milligram edible was not enough. I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) I did this recently and I thought I was going to have to go to an emergency room. My friend said after one hour or so, it's your birthday. We should eat the whole thing. Oh, no. So, okay. So everyone, this person consumed 200 milligrams of weed. So we did. 
And all I remember was her trying to do my makeup during the come up, her fucking up so bad. And then we were both peak high passing out at 1030 p.m. before my birthday even started. Fast forward to 6 a.m., the morning of my birthday, mind you, and I had to get up for work. My job that summer was my fourth year working at a summer camp. When I woke up, my friend was still asleep and I felt absolutely nauseous and like I was going to throw up. I also still felt extremely high. I don't feel like a nor- I didn't feel like a normal human being. I remember sitting at the toilet for like five minutes, crying about the fact that I was still high and then crawling up the stairs of my friend's basement and walking to my car only to drive home and be met with my parents and siblings singing me happy birthday at 7 a.m. I felt (laughs) awful and I felt even more awful that it was literally my birthday. I went to work that morning in a daze and I kept looking at myself in the mirror to see if I could tell I was high. I put that's eye, how you can tell. Yeah, that's how you can tell. <laughs> I put eye drops in my eyes and everything, but even then it was like my eyes were glued shut. At work, a bunch of the kids had stuff for me for my birthday. It was really cute and I loved it, but I felt so embarrassed and like I didn't know how to react to them. One even told me I looked different that day and asked if I was tired. LOL. Oh my God. I don't think anyone truly knew I was high except for my boss. She put me at the worst possible activities all day and made me stand in the middle of the baseball field while everyone sang happy birthday to me. She knew I hated that much attention and gave me a knowing look when she put her arm around my shoulder to ask how old I was. What a cunt. <laughs> in the end, I didn't get in trouble or anything at work and my parents didn't find out. I think the only true mistake was that I took a two, yeah, babe, a 200 milligram edible. Seriously, though, never do that. (laughs) I think that if I hadn't been high before, I would have ended up in the hospital due to an anxiety attack. I didn't feel even remotely sober until 24 hours after I had eaten the first half. That mistake has led me to the conclusion that a good edible is balanced with some CBD and isn't so strong as to make you feel like your eyeballs are popping out of your (laughs) sockets for 18 hours. Thank you for reading my story. I can't wait to hear more of your podcast, even if what I wrote isn't shared. Sending much life and light to you both. Love, B. XOXOXO. Oh, thank you, B. If there's one thing I learned from that story, it's that people that come from your high school take bad drug experiences. <laughs> and the lesson from that is never don't do drugs. It's let's learn how to do drugs the right way, yeah, hello. which I think is a good takeaway, but it yeah. is, it's funny that that's, um, you know, we were taught to be highly, uh, critical and analytical at our, at our prep and school adaptable. and adaptable. <laughs> Listen, I hated that high school for many reasons, but one of the, I think everyone I know that has come out of that school is extremely adaptable. Um, I think that story really inspired me to, we need to get my dad on this podcast. My dad has some some um, absolutely iconic stories of getting too high or tripping too hard in public situations. I mean, I would have killed myself. I recently ate 100 milligrams of weed. That's the most I've ever eaten at once because I they were 50 milligrams each. And I was like, what if I ate one more? Oh, and then I did. And then I was in my room for like two hours dry heaving in my bed, but like in silence because I didn't want Elisa or our other roommate to like know what was up. Mm. But I like have not been that panicked about being high in years. And then I definitely was like high the next morning and afternoon. I've never gotten high enough where I um, am still high when I wake up the next day. But boy, my first year in New York, I had a job where I had to wake up at 5 a.m. for it. So I would very often still be drunk at work because it's like in in New York... <laughs> You're out drinking until yeah, four. four. <laughs> so I would just like nap for 30 minutes and then go to work and be like 
I mean, I wouldn't be drunk, like belligerent, but I would be in- inebriated. No, for I sure. got it. Yeah. I mean, I've never gone into work drunk, but I did go into Urban Outfitters constantly still high, especially when I was like in my Coke era, um, <laughs> my first Coke era, because I like would I would often work nine to five. So I would like do Coke until like seven in the morning not be able to fall asleep Mm -hmm. and then walk to work (laughs) so high. And then I also went to work uh, at Urban Outfitters once still tripping on acid. Hell yeah. Big, the worst, one of the truly most heinous experiences of my life. And I hope no one ever does that. But if you do and you work retail, there is always a fitting room that they only use for storage. Nap in it. (laughs) That's what I did. There's always that one fitting room. Yeah. Damn. Well, that sucks, B. Uh, thank you for the cautionary tale. Nobody take 200 milligrams of weed, yeah. please. And B, let me know who you are and what graduating class you were in. Yeah, you guys should connect. Probably 2015 if we never talked. Um. All right. Are we ready for my deep dive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep dive. Deep dive. Okay. Um. My deep dive mistake I, um, so sort of towards the beginning of my comedy career, uh, well, not, not even the beginning of my comedy career, my beginning of my time in New York specifically. So I'd already been doing comedy for like two years, but my first few years in New York, um, I definitely had this like hunger in me Mm -hmm. to succeed in comedy that would blind my like it would blind me to red flags about other people if those people seemed like um they might be avenues not as a person but they might help me to avenues of success of some kind and so i for like especially my first two years in new york got into so many different collaborations with people because of um like oh well this person is really well connected here and they're good at this and they want to work with me so in order to like um help my career i'm going to ignore all these red flags about this person mm-hmm. and uh work with them which i've now um i've been kind of suffering the consequences of these mistakes well 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 <laughs> Yeah. The consequences of my own actions. Yeah. I've been suffering the consequences of it for a while now. The main consequence being a lot of those people were lying <laughs> about uh what their like connections were or their how they could help me. And here's the thing, I wasn't just trying to use people like being like, "Oh, you have these connections. Well, I then I'm going to make the decision to work with you so that I can get the benefits of that." It was more like these people would approach me yeah. to work with me and they'd pitch themselves to me as like Here's why we should run a show together. Here's why we should work on this project together. And in retrospect, they were trying to hitch themselves to my wagon. Exactly. And I didn't really realize that because I had such a weird, I had a warped view of myself where I was like, I was the one that needed opportunities and everyone else had things figured out that I didn't have figured out. And like now that I am able to have some space from those situations, I've been able to look back and be like, oh, this person was manipulating me. And then they benefited out of our collaboration. And I got fucking nothing out of it except this ongoing headache that we're still tied up in some kind of project together, which, um, yeah, there's just a few different relationships, ongoing professional mm-hmm. relationships in my life where these people have kind of revealed themselves to be absolutely useless to me. I love that I have the director's cut version of this 
deep dive. Oh yeah. I mean, and people, <laughs> anyone that's close to me knows exactly. There's a few people. I'm oh, anyone? About. Okay. <laughs> not anyone. No, 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 no. I mean, like you and like three other people have heard me oh. talking. I, I've been complaining about this a okay, lot. No, great. Stop. No, just let me know next time when you're like, you know, opening up to me that other people already know. Yeah. That you're not, we're not in an exclusive relationship like, of me complaining um, about my, my yeah. problems. <laughs> <laughs> We're not monogamous about me bitching <laughs> to you. I'm sorry, Nika. Anyway, no so it's the, it's a mistake, I think, that is often, I think, women underestimate themselves. I think young people underestimate themselves. I think, you know, any kind of marginalization, you might be perceiving the world as you're the one that needs other people's help. And yes. um, that can set you up to really shitty friendships really shitty exploitive friendships yeah and i've i'm currently mm-hmm. kind of extracting myself from one of the more ongoing parasitic relationships that i accidentally formed towards the beginning of my time in new york um where this person uh it just like in retrospect it's like you know that moment where like everything clicks into view like um, in Working Moms, our favorite show, when mm-hmm. she like remembers all the times that her husband was cheating on her. Oh my god, I forgot that whole plot point. <laughs> yeah, I literally watched there's this. Like, there's this a scene, few months ago. Yeah, there's yeah. a scene in that show where like Piece it's like shit husband. Like, there's like a montage of like these moments like that. What from her perspective, we've only seen her perspective of those moments in the show, and then it shows the other perspective of like what he was actually doing, and he was like actually cheating on her the whole time. I had like one of those moments in my life where I was like, Oh my god, this person has done literally nothing for me, and I've been like absolutely catering to them and accommodating them and um, helping their career and being manipulated by them since day fucking one and they're the mm-hmm. one that approached me as like that they would be an asset mm-hmm. to me and that's also another thing it's not like i'm like this i got nothing out of this friendship like that's yeah. not what friendships are for no i know what you but mean, that's though. how they entered my life was yeah. them being like hey we should work together and here's how i can help with that and in retrospect they did none of it yeah i've and, been there yeah and i think we all have been I yeah. think we've, and it, this person no surprise is like significantly older than me and like mm-hmm. knew what they were fucking doing yeah um and i think whatever it's and they're not the only person but they're the person that i'm kind of dealing with right now and it made me realize like oh wow this is not the first time i've had a one-sided relationship like this where i like have been kind of thinking that they were doing these things that they actually weren't doing and i've just been doing everything and being manipulated by them yeah um so yeah my mistake was just like underestimating myself and not knowing like not setting proper boundaries in my professional friendships and my professional relationships and not getting the fuck out of there in my ongoing collaboration with this person um, earlier when these red flags presented themselves and they like, and there is a lot of writing on the I wall mean, you with this ne- person. But you never see it at the time, especially, you know, I've, I've had a, a friendship like that when I was in politics and it's like, you don't see it until yeah. After the fact, because it's you feel like charmed and special and yes, yeah, and, and good. I, I I felt very like they really approached me like, oh, we got to work together because you're like you're this up and coming star and like I have these connections and like they they buttered my bread big time yeah. in this way that I was susceptible to because I wanted to hear that from anybody because yeah. I was desperate to succeed. I think that's something that a lot of people could benefit from hearing from uh, hearing about like if you're. If you've gone through that before or if you're currently going through it or if you've never gone through it, 
Um, look out for it. It's not something that I think I was really properly warned about. Like, I'm, I know that there's parasi- parasitic people who want to, like, kind of, like, mooch off of you in other ways, but I was not, I did not see it coming um, in this way. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm in, and th- this is somebody that I met, like, three years ago, and I am still in the midst of trying to, like, finally, like, disentangle our since- lives. Yeah, and Last it's Nika, <laughs> and I'm trying to get out of this podcast. <laughs> but she's looking won't let for. Me. I'm looking for a new co-host. Please go. <laughs> no. Anyway, what's our best mistake? Best mistake. Buckle up, babies! I'm taking you on a truly gorgeous journey through uh, the worst and uh, biggest man-made disaster in New York City history until 9-11. Wow. Um, I was like, you know, I am obsessed with this uh, particular uh, story and this time period. I'm taking us back to the 1900s, which I'm, I love. Um, I was like, I don't want to do something depressing again. And then I was like, what about the Triangle Factory fire? <laughs> so depressing. Um, so... The Triangle Factory fire happened on March 25th, 1911. My birthday. Your birthday. <laughs> on March 25th, 1911. Um, in okay, the- another 9-11. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> <laughs> those, those numbers, one and nine, never a good thing. Never a good thing. Um, so it happened in the Ash Building, which was a brand new one of like the brand new skyscrapers in downtown manhattan at the time and on the top three floors was um let me get their names up of who owned it but it was the triangle shirtwaist fire which um shirtwaists were very a very popular piece of clothing at the time um so they were in high demand. Where the fuck are my notes? <laughs> um, high demand. Okay, so it was owned. The factory was owned by Max Blank and Isaac Harris. Um, I don't know a ton about Isaac Harris, but Max Blank um, was from, I believe he himself had emigrated here with his family from Russia, um, if not being first generation. But he like was very much like the American dream at the time. So he like made it big, had this factory, became a, you know, very, very wealthy. Um, and we'll get to obviously why him and his partner are important in terms of the fire. But um, let's get some backstory first about this fire. So at this point in time, like the early 1900s, it's the Gilded Age in the United States. Industry is booming. The wealth gap is getting larger and larger and larger, pretty much like where we are right now. <laughs> People are being exploited and underpaid. It's the top 1% and then the 99. So you have garment workers living in crowded, abhorrent tenements on the Lower East Side and all over downtown Manhattan, who are primarily at this time immigrants who speak very little to no English from Eastern Europe, from Russia, from Southern Italy, etc. All of these nations that are were at the time coming to this country thinking that the streets were going to be paved with gold, didn't realize they would be paving the streets themselves. Yeah, um, with straight up asphalt straight up asphalt um so 
because of all of this industry, unions are popping off. Mm. And um, one such union was the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Ladies. It's made up of, obviously, garment workers across New York City, most of them Jewish and Italian. Um, Their focal point ends up being the Triangle Factory because it was the largest garment factory in the city. So it employed a fuck ton of people. The first strike happens in 1909, two years before the fire. Um, It becomes a citywide general strike called the Uprising of 20,000. It's the first large strike of women uh, in the country, mostly young immigrant girls who didn't even speak English. And oddly enough, or I guess not oddly, but I think an interesting aspect is that um, wealthy, like wealthy white society women who like were a little bit like into the movement shed a lot of light on this movement. Um, So like women helping women. (laughs) Um, So they like start shining light onto it. It becomes huge. Within days, it turns absolutely ugly because City police and factory owners are in cahoots. Yeah, of course. Sounds like today. Oh, wait. The, were the police protecting property and not people? That's weird. So that sounds unlike them. These women are, these women are like, fuck it. They start fighting the police. One woman um, goes on, like one woman reported that um, an officer, she's beating up an officer and he's trying to handcuff her. And she ends up like, pushing him off and running away out of the crowd. And as while she, when she gets away, she realizes that her fist was full of his hair. Um, (laughs) That's how hard she'd been fighting him. Um, So, and the city government, city council, the mayor help. So the result of this strike is that a lot of factory owners or not a lot, but a good number of factory owners around the city are like, fine, we'll listen to you. We'll make some improvements. But the Triangle factory owners, because they're so wealthy, they weathered the storm of the strike with the help of city government workers, mm. um, who, again, Max Blank and Isaac Harris. Um, so Some classic Jeff Bezos motherfuckers. Pretty much. So let me get more notes. Um, okay. So it was the, uh, as I said, the deadliest industrial disaster. Um, so let's set the scene. It's the morning of March 25th, 1911. Truly gorgeous spring morning. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, it's, uh, you know, the morning of um, all these women going to work. 146 people die. 128 of them are women. Um, the oldest woman was 46. The median age was like 24. And the youngest age was 14. It's mostly Jesus young women. Christ. So they're getting ready to clock out at 4:30 in the afternoon after a full days of exploitative horrible <laughs> fucking work and uh somebody flicks a lit cigarette into a bin that is full of um pieces of fabric and they don't know who did this but they the firefighters at the scene did realize that this is what caused the initial blaze so the women, the fire obviously very quickly engulfs the, uh, I believe it's the ninth floor of this building. And it's a skyscraper? And it's a skyscraper, yeah. So they, um, I believe it was the eighth, ninth, and tenth floor is what the factory was on. Mm. Um, so these three floors got engulfed. Um, and some of the practices at the time that were legal was that you could lock doors um, of, of the factory so that 
people couldn't get out themselves. Everyone knew at the time that it was safer for a door to open out rather than in. But the factory owners were allowed to let them open in for some reason. I don't know. Like, no one really knows why. Um, Mm. So the doors are locked. They also had essentially subway turnstiles in this specific factory so that women could be checked to make sure they weren't stealing fabric. So they would have to, like, go through this fucking mechanical thing to get out. So... They also don't have, at the time, um, it's everything with like safety in factories at this time is suggested, not enforced. So it's suggested that a factory at this time have sprinklers in the ceiling, not enforced. It's suggested that factory workers are trained in fire drills, not enforced. So Blank and Harris are like, well, fuck it. We're not doing any of that. We care about capital. The fire happens, spreads pretty quickly. These women don't know what's going on. Um, The man who runs the elevator downstairs hears, he's about to clock out. He hears the bell for the um, elevator ringing incessantly. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? He goes back up. He sees what's going on. So he's able to save a hundred I think like a, a 82 between 80 and 100 girls and workers he's able to save from those elevator trips but eventually the women are freaking out so much that they're jumping yeah. into the elevator shaft not realizing not realizing the elevator isn't there and then crushing the elevator so it can't go back up. Oh no. Another 50 people or uh, between 50 to 80 additional people are saved because blank his Blank and his young daughters who have showed up with their governess to go shopping that day after the day ends himself, his daughters and a few other, you know, a bunch of other workers are able to escape via the roof where an NYU professor brings down a ladder and they're able to get onto his building, onto his roof. No one else is saved. Um, Jesus Christ. So. Well, I'm glad the owner is yeah, okay. Right. Oof. I know. So. What happens is that it's pandemonium. Um, a pretty much like a thousand New Yorkers are on the streets below watching it happen and are like, what the fuck? Please don't like pleading with them. Like, don't jump. Help us on the way. Well, baby, help is not on the way because the firefighters get there. They lift up their ladders. Their ladders only reach to the eighth floor. Oh, no. Or, I'm sorry. The sixth floor. Which is a 30 feet difference oh to my God. the 8th, ninth, and 10th floor. So they, because skyscrapers are fairly new in 1911, and there's no regulation going on. So they realize that they're fucked. And they're like, we can spray. We're going to use our water guns, but we can't get anyone out. So onlookers on the street go on to report that they see bundles of cloth being thrown onto the ground and think that it's the women in the factory workers trying to save material until one uh, pile of fabric reveals a pair of legs and shoes. So they realize it's women jumping out of the windows to save themselves. Um, One woman reports... uh, Did any of the jumpers survive? No. All of the jumpers died. Yeah, that's um, too high. Yeah, no, they all died. And one of the Ugh. one of the women um, told her granddaughter that her cousin Rose Feinberg died. Um, or I'm sorry, her friend Rose Feinberg died. And 
her friend Rose grabbed her during the fire and didn't say anything, just ran to a window and the friend pulled away and out of shock and Rose jumped out of the window. And she always went on to say, you know, my beautiful friend Rose, she was so beautiful and she didn't survive because she jumped, but the friend didn't. The friend was able to get out through oh, the no. elevator. Um, one of like my favorite dark bits of this story is that the first people to see him jump were a young woman in the factory and a uh, man who like a young guy who had been helping the women to the windows and then was kissing them on the mouth before they were jumping. They were like just kissing each other. It was like this weird like kiss of fucking take the kiss into the afterlife. I don't know. Um, huh. And. There were like women hugging each other and jumping out the window. Um, another young man who worked in the factory clocked out or ran out when the fire started, realized that he had left his families. He came from a very poor immigrant Russian family, but their only like really uh, only good like family heirloom was a pocket watch that he had had on him and he left it. So he ran in to go get it. He was 18 and he didn't make it. Oh my God. Um, no. He, and so the, I think the fire only goes on for about, uh, let's see. Um, it only goes on for about an hour. So it's really, it's really quick. 123 women and girls, 23, 23 men, um, 14 to 23 is the majority of, of the victims ages. Um, and it, so, Basically, like what led to it was um, the doors and the stairwells and exits were locked, uh, which was really common back then. Um, the workers couldn't escape the building, so they jumped from the high windows, etc. So like all of these things were preventable. So obviously, because there's already union labor organizing attention on this specific factory with the climate of what was going on on top of this horrific has never been seen before Tragedy. Uh, tragedy in New York, it sets off a firestorm of a movement in New York. So basically, like there are there were multiple funerals a day, every day for a month. Um, and pretty much because, you know, we all know how like tiny the Lower East Side is and how tiny downtown is. Everybody knew each other. So everybody was going to like multiple funerals a day, mm-hmm. which now we're like. Oh, okay. Sounds normal. Yeah. <laughs> in this country. Um, Truly. So, um, ob- you know, these bodies are like so badly burned that people can't like are identifying them from like really like random things. Like one little girl is able to identify her mother from the braid that she had braided for her mother that day. Oh, Another no. family is able to identify their daughter from the corks in her shoe her oh. the, the, uh, the bottom of her shoes. Um, the boy, you know, the young man who ran in to get the, uh, what, what the fuck, the pocket watch and died was actually engaged to a woman who was supposed to meet him in Washington Square Park. That night, he doesn't show up. She hears about the fire. She goes to identify the body. She finds the pocket watch. She flips out, no. you know, so it's, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, and so it sets off a shit storm. Um, the labor unions start organizing uh, even more. Um, and the, the first like piece of the shitstorm is that the city, there end up being six unidentified bodies. The labor 
organizers and unions want to bury these bodies in a paid-for union plot. The city comes out and says, we don't want these lost souls to be, you know, fodder for union protests. So they bury them in a, like, mass grave paid for by the city in a cemetery in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. which all of these people lived in downtown Manhattan. So it really pisses off the labor unions, Mm -hmm. obviously. And... Then a trial happens. So Max Blank and why do I keep forgetting the other guy? I think because he's not talked about a lot. For some reason, Max Blank is like really the the center. Oh, Max Blank and Isaac Harris. So Max Blank and Isaac Harris um, are, go to trial and they pretty much they like get off scot-free. Um Counsel for the defendants managed to uh, destroy the credibility of one of the survivors, this young woman named Kate Alterman. Wait for it. By asking her to repeat her testimony a number of times, which she did without altering any key phrases, she kept saying the same thing. So because of this, the defense was able to say or to you know create uh, some doubt as to whether or not she really knew what happened or was it more likely that she had been fed a story was fed a story by the labor unions. Oh my God. It takes two hours for a jury of all men to acquit these two men. Pandemonium happens. One of the brothers of one of the victims is outside of the courtroom is calling them murderers. Yeah, of course. Um, So they like go back to trial a few times and like in a, like a, a few years after all that happens is that they pay like a small fine, but they go back into business. Nothing happens to them. Um, but the result of the fire and of these senseless deaths is that we get the American society of safety professionals, which is founded a few months later in October of 1911. Um, new laws and, uh, New laws are mandated for better building access and egress. Fireproofing requirements are enforced. The availability of fire extinguishers, the installation of alarm systems, automatic sprinklers, better eating and toilet facilities for workers, and limiting the number of hours that women and children could work. Um, And so in the years from 1911 to 1913, 60 of the 64 new laws recommended by the commission end up being actually legislated with the support of Governor William Seltzer. I'm sorry, it's not coming out of my nose. (laughs) it's okay i'm just so moved um so (laughs) so it's you know it it basically it does not basically it literally did set off the labor movement as we know it it like it gave credibility to unions and to labor organizers to like the average worker in Mm. a way that hadn't really been up until that point, like people were joining unions, but it was like a dirty word. Um, this sets off like a, a huge movement in New York City. It didn't need to happen, unfortunately, because every single thing that got passed after the fire were things that were already being fought for in 1909 at the general city strike. And they kept the women kept saying, like, there is going to be a tragedy of like mass fucking proportion if you don't fix this like we're we're just letting you know um so it as i said it ends up it ended up being the biggest tragedy in new york until 9 11 um and was all majority women who were working there um yeah i i um i like just discovered i sound like i feel like i sound like a 
a colonist when I say I discovered something. <laughs> I came to uh, the knowledge of this tragedy and all of my facts come from um, Triangle Remembering the Fire, which is a 40-minute documentary on HBO that was released on the 100-year anniversary in 2011. It's really, really good because it's all... It, it's told from the perspective of all of the survivors mm. uh, or like descendants of survivors, which like 1911 feels like a really long time ago, but it's a lot of people who are like my grandmother or yeah, like yeah, yeah. my great aunt or my cousin. But then it's also people who are like, like the story about the man going up into the elevator. It's his great, great grandson. The story about Rose Feinberg is from, and the, the woman whose friend was Rose is from a, uh, a granddaughter. Um, so uh, it's it was just it's really interesting to get all of their perspectives and stories. Right. Um, Where was it in uh, Manhattan? The building. Yeah. It's still there. It's um, it is. I know. Oh, it's, wait. Yeah. I think I've walked by it and like somebody mentioned gonna, this fire to me and I was like, that sounds sad and I yeah. don't want to hear more. <laughs> I'm going to pull up the um address one moment they do um an event there every year i wonder if they'll do it this year outside where they like remember the women um it is on 2329 washington place so truly downtown oh yeah and it had been built in 1900 so it was a new building which means like they could have put in all of these things but they didn't want to because of the money that they would have lost because they just obviously if you don't have any you know the government at this point was not only in the hands of uh uh factory owners, et cetera, these industries that were pumping out a lot of money for the already wealthy. But we were in a period where we had absolutely no government oversight. And so obviously, if you don't have government oversight, then you're not, if there's no regulation, no, yeah. you're not going to do anything about it because you don't need to. Moral of the story. When I was thinking about talking about this today, I was like, well, what is the fuck up in this scenario? Obviously, capitalism, well, capitalism, but also just like the ineptitude of government and especially like the ineptitude of the New York fucking city council in 1911 and in 2021. Yeah, like really just like spineless politicians who care about money. And, you know, I think it's very similar to what just happened to the city this summer with the budget, Mm -hmm. the NYPD budget, and the majority of New York City councilors caving and fucking us over. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the ineptitude of the federal government and the greediness and not listening to workers and not, you know, not allowing workers to advocate for themselves. Well, I mean, a really easy parallel to make is that scientists have been screaming at the top of their lungs that there's a pandemic that we need to get ready for that is like whipping around the corner for like a decade now. Yeah. And then we had a government that was like, "Mm, but it's like not super profitable to have a like pandemic wing of legislation or, you know, the, the, the people that Trump cut. What was that called again? The people there's like there was a program in place that was like to prepare for a pandemic that Trump got rid of. Oh, oh, when, yeah. I don't know what it's called, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what it is? No, but some like, kind of response. To yeah, some kind of. Yeah. But the point being, they were there to prepare for a possible pandemic. Um, some of the elements of which being like making you're oh you're fine um like having more ventilators at 
hospitals yes. and like all these things that ended up being the very thing that fucked us that we didn't have it um yes. because if it's not a crisis in this exact moment then why why what are we talking about who cares yeah, no, absolutely. I'm sorry, I was listening to you. I was looking for a quote from uh, what happened, but it's no, actually, I mean, it's just, it was uh, like from people who were there. It was about the the young man, because I wanted to correct myself. It, he wasn't kissing multiple people. It says the first person to jump was a man, and another man was seen kissing a young woman at the window before they both jumped to their deaths. Ugh. Yeah, because I mean, these people were fucking young. They were like, you know, in their fucking... I know, think about all the things that you do between the ages of 14 and 23. And none of them should be working in a fucking factory that they lock you in and then dying in that factory. Well, it's, it's also like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was so like a addendum. I was, when I was in Massachusetts recently, I went to the uh, Mass MoCA, Massachusetts mm-hmm. Contemporary Art Museum, which was gorgeous. But, and I was like tripping on shrooms and it's in this old factory building in North Adams. Yeah. And the thing that I was paying the most attention to while I was like walking around the museum alone were these little plaques that have quotes from all of the like either like former factory workers who are still alive or like family members of them. And I was just so much more interested in their stories than I was in like the art installations in the museum. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. I find like, all, like it's just a very, we don't like really hear from like this was so commonplace. Obviously, it wasn't commonplace that 148 people were dying constantly. Yeah. But like, you know, people I think about like my ancestors mm-hmm. who like came to this country and worked in factories mm-hmm. like not that long ago mm-hmm. um, at four. I mean, my great grandmother Lucia was working in a jewelry factory, costume jewelry factory when she was like nine. And when I was nine, <laughs> I was like discovering how to <laughs> masturbate. Like when I was know. nine, I was collecting American girl dolls with yeah. the money that family members sent me in birthday yeah. cards. Or even like 20. I'm like, God damn it. My great my great grandparents were toiling away in factories at 20, and I was uh getting dick down in Brazil. Yeah. Like it's just it's a very it's so I don't know. It feels very interesting to me. And I feel like I need to constantly be like remembering that aspect of yeah, the mean, brutality of all of this. We have always seen certain people as disposable. Yeah. I mean, I feel exploited at work when like they make me do my job. So I can't even imagine they were actually being exploited. (laughs) But I think that like, you know, things that we find horrifying about the industrial revolution is that people that we now deem human were the ones being exploited. But there are still lots of people being exploited in similar ways yeah. all over the world, um, which may be the moral of the story is that uh, this is not a thing of the past. No. I mean, there have been recent factory fires in sweatshops. And also, like, I mean, you know, uh, also constantly, I'm, like, very pro-union, and I, like, I think, ugh, I think unions are so fucking hot um <laughs> especially labor unions yeah and so i'm like obsessed with union history and like you know Same. even now in the 70s like uh norma wright with sally field is about a true story of the first textile mill in the textile industry finally getting unionized with a textile mill in the deep south um with ron lieberman who plays a hot ass jewish brooklyn like union man who gets Sally Field's character, Norma Ray, who's like a single mom and a whore mm-hmm. to unionize this mill. Um, and I just think it's interesting that like 
it's if you like look at it, it's very clear how even to this day unions were still in such a battle with unions not being looked at as the bad guys. Yeah, totally. It's like unions are hot. Yeah, and so much so much of the things that we take for granted in our lives today are the direct result of unions fighting for it. Like the 40-hour work week or yeah. the weekend. This actually so this was part of the 40-hour work week. So at that point it was 60-hour work weeks and this helped change it. This had like a massive massive prolonged effect on the movement and on what we know today as like safe like, you know, work practices. And I think it's very interesting and inspiring and very girl boss that it was, <laughs> you know, women. It was unions of women who didn't even fucking speak English. Yeah. Who were poor toiling away in these factories who we can thank them for having the balls to start this movement. Yeah. Or not to start the movement themselves, but they were the ones carrying it on their backs. As always, it's always yeah. fucking women. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, that's badass to me. Like yeah. the 15-year-old girls from Southern Italy. With honestly way more to lose than any of us yeah. really have. Oh, absolutely. And um, yeah, I'm constantly uh, like, you know, like a cartoon character with hearts in my eyes, thinking about what people have fought for in the past and like put everything on the line for um, that we now like reap the benefits of. I'm going to go on my phone real quick because I'm very curious to know if the Ash building is like now apartments or something. Oh, yeah. Like, can you imagine how fucking haunted it must be? My roommate and I were just talking about how our new apartment is definitely haunted, but we think they're chill ghosts. Oh, so it's called the Brown Building now on Wikipedia, but it was called the Ash Building. And I know that because I watched the documentary last night. Um, Let's see. Um, NY. Oh, my God. NYU began to use the eighth floor, which was like where the fire was, of the building for a library and classroom in 1916. So only a few years years later. later. Real estate speculator and philanthropist Frederick Brown. Okay, that's why. Later bought the building and donated it to the university in 29. It was renamed the Brown Building. In 2002, the building was incorporated into the Silver Center for Arts and Science. Okay, if you go to NYU and you listen to the pod and you have ever had classes on the 8th, ninth, or 10th floor of the Brown Building, formerly known as the Ash Building, please write us. Yeah, let, tweet us, at know us. let us know what the vibe was. Yeah, because um, you are truly in class um, in what was a slaughterhouse. Oh, my God. So. Support workers unions, everybody. I mean, I, I'm like so um, currently like bogged down by how sad I am at the current state of like workers rights and minimum wage and all that. I know it's been a lot worse in the past, but it's not great now either. No, it's stayed um, steadily bad. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, we're kind of just holding the possibility of homelessness over people's heads so that they're willing to work for um, nearly no money and really, uh, unethical conditions yeah and you know shit stays mostly the same but it's very the the it's empowering to know what happened um in workers rights as a result yeah it sucks that it took that to mobilize it but it always happens on the government level obviously the workers were already mobilized but anyway um God damn. Yeah. Write us if you went to NYU and ever were in that building. Also write us um, your mistakes, your stories. We, we love to hear it. We do. Best mistakes pod at gmail.com. Gmail. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you're not already. Yeah, at best Nico Lamasso, <laughs> at Anya Vaults, at Best Mistakes. Yeah. Subscribe to our OnlyFans. Yes. Just do the thing, generally speaking. Just generally do the damn thing. Oh, leave us a review. We love please. to hear from you. A written, like we love the stars, but also the written review. Yeah, please. give us some stars if you're in a rush. But if you have a moment, um, the written reviews really warm our goddamn hearts. We should probably we should do some kind of segment where we read some of the written reviews. Let's do it. Because they're very nice. Um, and not right now, because I have to read the 123 names of all of the women killed. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> oh, God. Celia, but- get in. <laughs> Rose, but Fine let us bush. all carry those women and the few men in our hearts because, um, you know, gone too soon. Yeah, gone, uh, gone way too soon. Yeah, yeah, tragic. And all the people that are gone too soon right now in another preventable tragedy, like the one right now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally what when I you just said. said. Another preventable tragedy. I just thought you meant like in general a preventable tragedy, not this one. Well, I said right now. Yeah, but there are lots of. Just, <laughs> so I just thought you meant in general. Nika, I swear Anya. to God, I'm going to physically fight you. Yeah, I'll fucking knock you out and lose. Yeah, I know I we're about to reach uh, 400,000 people a day dying in the United States. Can I get a? Can I get a boo? Yeah, not 400,000 a day. Yeah, that's what they just said. 4,000 a day. 400,000. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah fuck yeah. you both. Who I mean, cares? Listen, either way, it's still it's atrocious. God, semantics, semantics. It, it might be four hundred thousand oh, a day. Who cares? <laughs> Biba, oh my god. All right, bye. <laughs> four hundred thousand a day Cut. would be a very different. It's all the same to me. To be honest, you know, whatever. <laughs> I think it's the same, but whatever. It's still horrible. It's four thousand. Oh, so you think it's not it's, as bad? It's, still, it's only four thousand. I don't think it's not as bad. I'm saying it's not the same. It literally isn't. <laughs> yeah, the Lisa same. just called you a death apologist. <laughs> I fucking hate you both. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm I'm Lisa, done being. Lisa runs up and rips your head off like it's Twilight. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we talked about nine eleven being the tragedy to follow up that factory tragedy um there are more people a day dying right now than died in 9-11 either way whether it's 4,000 or 400,000 that's still more than the number that died in 9-11 which what happened both in this factory fire on 9-11 all these all these tragedies have been horrific and preventable and preventable, but uh, yeah, 9-11 is another example of government ineptitude. Oh, extremely. There's a really great show on Hulu about it that I watched, like yeah. a, a, a dramatized. It's fucking. Should we I, have a Bush did 9-11 episode? Yeah. We will. Let's okay. do it. Leave a review. We love you. Bush did 9-11. Bush did 9-11. Rose Feinberg. <laughs>